I wish we'd had this when I was in college. I could have sold right? my physics notebooks. That would have been oh huge. <laughs> no, no, but so this is cool. just for sports paraphernalia. Yeah, you have to be in sports ball, John. Oh, I thought it was this. for college mathletes. <laughs> oh. oh. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Welcome to Another Bite, where we rewatch some of the most innovative and intriguing pitches from Shark Tank. I'm Jory, and I'm joined by Ariel. Hey, everyone. And John. How's it going? This is Heart Week. And no, I don't mean humble, empathetic, adaptable, remarkable, and transparent. I mean Kevin Hart, duh. Today, we're looking at three products that may or may not have caught the attention of the actor and comedian. Who will secure a deal? Time will tell. But first, a word from the folks that pay the bills. There's no secret formula for better service throughout the customer journey. But there is the all-new Service Hub from HubSpot. By bringing service and support together in one powerful platform, you can deliver the best experiences for your customers and your teams. Free up time for your reps to focus on complex issues with an AI-powered help desk. Also, you can easily support, strengthen, and grow your customer base. Secrets out. HubSpot Service Hub is a game changer. Visit HubSpot.com slash service to do more for your customers today. So first in the tank, we have Black Sands. And Black Sands comes to us from Manuel, Giselle, and Tunis. And they are coming into the tank asking for $500,000 for 5% equity stake in their company. That is a $10 million valuation. And the problem that they're trying to solve for is, you know, despite the seemingly endless amount of content, be it TV, movies, anime, comics, etc., it's still really hard to find content and characters that really represent the Black community and their historical achievements. So their solution is Black Sands Entertainment, which is a Black-owned publishing house. And it started with a flagship book that is also called Black Sands, not to be confused with the name of the publishing house. And it's Black Sands and the Seven Kingdoms. And this was really their kind of jumpstart into the media space. But thinking about our product, thinking about our founders and their initial proposition and pitch, what are our initial thoughts of Black Sands? I think it's amazing to provide a platform for Black creators to elevate a lot of the parts of history that do get excluded from a lot of like textbooks or when you're growing up. So I love the fact that it's kind of a blend based off of nonfiction fiction. Mm. And I think that's such a difficult balance to strike when it comes to books and garnering that interest more so than it is just for like your typical Hunger Games or other fiction like books that come out within the market. Yeah. I mean, to build on what you said, Ariel, I think representation matters so much in media. It's got amazing societal benefits. Like I think everybody just like straight up deserves to see themselves represented in culture. And I think everybody deserves to be exposed to people who are different than them. And so from that perspective already, I really like it. Beyond that though, it's also great for business. Like Mm -hmm. underserved markets have tremendous upside potential as a business That's one thing that struck me right from the start is this is amazing because it creates an opportunity for more people to see themselves represented in mass media, but it's also has the potential to be just an absolutely incredible business because that community is just underserved historically. But yeah, let's dig into those numbers. They are doing really fantastic with their sales to date, right? So if the standard average like unit sales is around 10,000, 
then Black Sands is kind of smashing it out of the park because as of the time of the pitch, they were on pace to make 120,000 units of sale by the end of the year. So like incredibly high demand for this comic book series and arguably the other 12 series that they had signed on to their brand as of the time of the pitch. Yeah, and they're doing a good margin on it. They're like comic book business. It's running an 85% margin. It's insane. They're making really good money here. It's a good business. Definitely. I'm remembering the fact, you know, this pitch happened in January of 2022. It is like perfect timing, John, to your point, because we see more things from like Marvel having more multiracial characters or telling stories about LGBTQIA like main characters. So there definitely is that appetite in the market to have more representation for some of these underrepresented groups. And they all did it in-house. I think it was just that one animator that, is that they impressive. hired. It's an impressive team. Is re- like insane to me, the amount of success that they've had, just given how early on they kind of are within the process. The real question to me is, can this continue to see the success? Mm. And this basically, I think, boils down to how good the IP is. Like, how good are these characters? I almost wish that their pitch had been way more focused on exposing us to their multiverse or whatever it is, you know, to actually help us understand, like, the richness of the universe they've created. Hmm. Because it it has a lot of parallels to Disney to me. Uh, One of the business books I enjoyed the most uh, during the pandemic was Bob Iger's Ride of a Lifetime. Really interesting book about the story of Disney and, like, what he did when he took over Disney. And he basically went on a content buying spree. Right? He bought Pixar, mm-hmm. Star Wars, Marvel. He bought Muppets too, which got to love the Muppets. Okay. But he did it for two reasons, right? Number one is that he understood fundamentally that the unbundling of media meant that in order to like get distribution with consumers, like you needed content to do it. That's the only mm-hmm. reason people will subscribe to your direct-to-consumer streaming business in the future. And the other was because if you have great IP, you can create lots and lots and lots and lots of derivative content pieces. And we see both of those playing out with Disney right now. And so I see parallels here. And so to me, it kind of boils down to like, how good is this IP? Like, how interesting are these characters? How much depth will people want to watch spinoffs? series? Will they want to buy merch? Will they want to do all these things? And that was the only thing that I wish the pitch had had that it didn't. I don't think it's necessarily whether or not this can be an IP or like a franchise that gets blown out of the water. I actually think there is that piece of the historical context of like, these are based off of Egyptian history before like slavery happened. I think that component is what makes it kind of stand on its own as opposed to here's where we could take it more. So here's kind of what we're trying to shape that narrative and that storytelling. So I do think that's like a very important piece to kind of elevate when we think about scalability. When Kevin Hart, who was the guest shark, as the intro kind of alluded to, started to really dig into like what the money was for, we got the first hint of a little bit of vagueness on the Mm. part of our founder. As they start to dig into like, what is the plan behind this money? What is the Mm -hmm. strategy behind this money? We started to kind of hit this vagueness that left me a little concerned because like, yes, we got the answer that the money was to hire artists, but I really wish that we had also started to get into the nitty gritty of like how we're going to continue to market this and scale it because it's clear that they've done something really successful. You know, in the first year they were at $40,000 in 2017 and they're at $800,000 in 2022. I would have loved to see that story of like Mm. how this really started to unfold and then like dig into how they're going to continue to scale this, like knowing that Black Sands is clearly resonating with an audience already. So that was my only bit of critique where I was like, I want to know more about the business side as exciting as the characters are. 
Yeah, I felt that vagueness too. And it actually kind of ended up underscoring a little bit of what Kevin Hart could offer. Yeah. I think this is an incredibly talented creative team who have come up with a point of view and an approach to creating content that clearly is resonating in its target market. And now the question is just, how do they scale it? What do they need to do next? And I was trying to look into like, how much does it cost to like make and distribute content? And it turns out like somewhere between 35 and 40% of the costs that go into making a film, you know, is actually the distribution of it, Hmm. right? Like how do you get it into the world? And so you're like, well, it's going to be like hard to build that from scratch. It's going to take an exceptional amount of money. And even on the production side, getting access to a network of creators that are part of Kevin Hart's network would both just be incredible value that will save them a ton of time and a ton of money. I think they should have came in definitely offering more than 5%. It's like they need a partner to help them think Mm -hmm. outside of the box. So that's the only reason why I was like, "Eh, I'm going to give them benefit of the doubt. (laughs) Totally fair. This was one of those situations where the founders clearly had a specific shark in mind. And like knowing that he's such like a distributor powerhouse and has a lot of that like production prowess behind him, that does make sense. If they were like always looking to partner with him, Mm -hmm. honestly, his team is going to figure it out. Right. I do wish they had been more like, blunt about admitting that. Mm -hmm. What they should have said is, we want this money mainly so that we can go deep with a partner who can bring us the following expertise, which we know we need. But even like given the valuation problems, Mark actually kind of jumped in on this. I don't know, like I just saw his interest kind of come out of nowhere. So it was really interesting for Mark to be like, hey, like Kevin, you figure out what you're good at. I'll figure out what I'm good at. And, you know, we'll partner together on this deal. Can I just take a minute to acknowledge the deadly duo that is Mark Cuban and (laughs) Kevin Hart throughout all of these segments? The minute that they start collaborating together, it's like game over for all the other sharks. Like no other sharks can compete. (laughs) I love that Kevin's always willing to do a partnership, though. I feel like I could go get a partnership with Kevin. I feel like I just want to like pop out. Next time he's on Shark Tank, I'm going to like stick my head out and be like, Kevin, let's do this deal together. And I'll be like, all right, John. So we had a bit of back and forth between the dynamic duo that is Mark and Kevin and our founders. Ultimately, though, even though the founders tried to kind of lower the equity on the ask, Mark and Kevin asked for a 30% stake in their company for a $500,000 deal. And ultimately, that was the deal that was sealed with the founders. And I sort of get it, right? Like in terms of partnerships, like both Mark and Kevin bring really unique offers as investors to the company. Mm -hmm. So... I could sort of see where they were coming from in terms of like, hey, we're going to do some work for you. You got to make it worth our while. Yeah, I think the 30% is fair. All right. So this pitch was back in January of 2022. So admittedly, it's not been that long. Okay. (laughs) As of October 2022, the lifetime sales of Black Sands was up to 2 million. But exciting update is that Kevin Hart is actually planning to grow this franchise into a TV series, which is something that the founders had mentioned that they were aspiring to. And he's actually hoping to endorse a feature film for Black Sands. Oh, yeah. Definitely some of those aspirations coming into fruition after this Shark Tank deal and I guess like deal with this dream shark. That's incredible.
All right, so pivoting just a bit, next in the tank, we've got a product in more of the health and wellness space. Here we have Transformation Factory, and Transformation Factory comes to us from founder Alexio, and Alexio's asking $500,000 for 5% in his company, which is a $10 million valuation. We're going to see some valuations go up, my friends. And, you know, we actually get a bit of an origin story with this pitch. So the founder himself used to be 500 pounds and was told that he wouldn't see 30. And as part of his transformation, he found this ingredient that contained all of these minerals like zinc and magnesium that humans really need in their diet, but sometimes are quite deficient in. So this has led to the inspiration behind his product, Transformation Factory, which is, quote, a mouthwatering sea moss gel. When you think of gel, it's not like the soft gel pills that you see like certain vitamins take. It's actually like a marmalade or a jam. It's like jelly. Yeah, like a jam. Yeah, it's yeah. like a jelly jar. Really, the point of this product is like to give people access to this nutritional ingredient so they too can be the best versions of themselves. So thinking about our product and our pitch, initial thoughts? What an incredible entrepreneur. Yeah. I, uh, so you know, one of the things you, I think, bet on if you're an investor in companies and in entrepreneurs is the team. You mm-hmm. like invest in the people and you kind of just have to figure out if those people are the type of people who can persevere mm-hmm. and like find a way. I can't think of a better tell about whether someone can persevere and find a way than a person who lost 300 pounds in a weight loss journey. That must have been so incredibly difficult. and Even just the mental stamina mm-hmm. of that, the me- right? 100%. The mental stamina, yeah. the ability to keep going, the motivation, mm-hmm. like I quit the after ability to envision the future. So hard. <laughs> you should have just walked in, told the story, and gotten a check and just left. I am not going to lie. I will admit I had some healthy skepticism at first. Anytime there's any product yep. that has claims, I'm always skeptical about it. You have it. to be. But I feel like this pitch actually did a really good job of, you know, quantifying a little bit more of some of the value that there actually is in the nutrition in CMOS. I felt like I learned a lot, but I definitely was a little bit skeptical at first. I have to ask though, did you feel like you got the education you needed to truly be like, I believe in CMOS? Or did he just repeat the (laughs) phrase, it contains 90% of the minerals that we need in our diet? Like I, I will admit he said that at least five times in the pitch with no further backing. So was it repetition that got you or was it the storytelling? Jory, what about all those minerals though? Are you getting 99% of your minerals every day? I happen to take magnesium, thank you. So uh, yeah. Okay, why not take it in jelly form right from the sea? True, especially when it's so mouthwatering, comes in mango flavor. You know, exactly. maybe it was the repetition, but the sales speak for themselves too. And the fact that he was only in business for 11 months. He's found an underserved market and he's yes. found product market fit. That is for sure. Okay. There's an audience and it's not me. Yeah. The audience. Let's talk about that for a second though, because there's sometimes that like the product is also something that we need to think about in its contemporary stage. So this was like a pitch back in 2020 in May. So it's also really important to know that this is a product that is like striking when the iron's hot because it's worth noting that in February 2022, Kim Kardashian went on this like huge Twitter campaign about how she had just started drinking these Seamoth smoothies. Mm. And in the point in time that this pitch was happening, 
that was the new superfood fad. So mm. CMOS, I don't know like how much it, it's still a part of everyone's conversation in terms of superfoods, but that was what that was. It was the new kale. Yeah, because Kevin did mention at one point, he's like, I know about this. I bought this beforehand. I know that this is like more of like a cultural product, but it mm-hmm. seems like there was a pretty strong level of awareness. That's also true. If it happened, you know, after Kim Kardashian's kind of push for it, totally makes sense. You know, if Kim Kardashian is talking about CMOS and you happen to be at the right place at the right time, Mm -hmm. you deserve to be able to grow your business on that. That's incredible. It also is important to note for our viewers out here, there's never been a clinical trial on uh, CMOS. (laughs) So like we're saying it's good product. We're not necessarily endorsing it. Use at your own uh, discretion. Yeah, Use at your own (laughs) risk. We're not medical experts. You shouldn't listen to three marketers at HubSpot about whether or not. (laughs) Quick disclaimer. (laughs) Anywho, but... Yes, it's a timely product, but mm-hmm. let's dig into those numbers a bit. Because like, as you mentioned, Ariel, like this company is already successful by the time they're pitching to the sharks. Yeah. So I think he said it all started pretty organically, that he was sneaking it into his grandmother's smoothies and posting it online <laughs> to gain traction. Now, there's a number of different ways you can gain traction through shock and awe, through pranks, through jokes. But this is one of those ways I just did not settle right with me. But good for him, that 800% growth that he saw after getting the presence online, running ads seemed to work um, in this instance. Yeah. And by the time he's in the Shark Tank, $3.5 million of lifetime sales when he started his business 11 months ago. Like That's a lot of money. Most people come on the show and they've done like maybe like 100K in sales, like 200K, 300K. And he's profitable. Yeah. He's got 35% net margins. So he's made over a million dollars already on this product. He's got money to invest in the business. And he's still direct to consumer too, right? So it's not even in retail. He's still direct to consumer. Right. Yeah. Knowing that this is a product that like potentially was successful, at least in some kind of way, based on like the virality of CMOS at the time, how would you two market it though to make sure that it was defensible in the long run? Hmm. Well, I think no matter what you do, you are going to want to ensure that you still continue to have some social proof element of Mm -hmm. your campaign. Like the thing is, is like, I don't think the average consumer would hear about CMOS and think, well, that was so like 2020. I think yeah. most would think like, uh, oh yeah, CMOS. I've actually been like meaning to try it. I think it's like a real thing. Mm-hmm. So I think you want to have a strategy that both keeps it top of mind and reminds people about it who maybe haven't tried. And then my guess is you have to do a lot of content marketing. Mm-hmm. The transformation factory and his story is probably powerful enough yeah. that he can build his own brand around it. And I would actually take the shark's money and build a media team for him and his company and go like super hard at that. My initial thought went to how do we incorporate CMOS more into like other foods? Could this be mixed with like a vinaigrette that you put on top of a salad? So I think even just like videos on Instagram reels or TikToks of like just making general food that everyone eats and adding this as an ingredient as opposed to like leaning in heavily on like the influencer side that can cost like hundreds of thousands of dollars pretty quickly. I'd love to know actually what the LTV of a customer is here. It would dictate a lot about how much he could pay in marketing. I think that's one of the big questions I have is basically like, how much can he invest in acquiring customers? Mm-hmm. Can he invest a lot? Because it turns out once people start taking CMOS, they'd never get off it and they will be like a repeat customer and buy two new jars every month. Or is it like you really actually get an average of 1.4 jars per customer you acquire, in which case like, yikes, you can't pay much and you've got to really rely more on the virality and content. Well, there were a couple of things that the Sharks really loved about this product. You know, you had a founder that was still the sole owner, even after all this success. Yeah. You had a lot of revenue, a lot of cash flow, mm-hmm. a product that, according to the Sharks, 
sharks was very tasty. So I say, quote, mouthwatering. They confirmed, at least the sharks did, that it was tasty. And it caught the attention of a couple different sharks. This was a case where, you know, sometimes sharks themselves have to learn that you got to snap something up while it's good because we had Kevin Hart first team up with Barbara mm-hmm. and then Mr. Wonderful came into the game. But then, you know... That moment that Mark was interested Mm -hmm. in partnering up with Kevin, no one could beat it. So ultimately, the deal was made with Kevin and Mark for $600,000 for a 20% stake in the company. And again, we see that power duo, right? Like Mark and Kevin looking to distribute some CMOS. So both the founder and the shark were able to partner up together, even despite a bidding war. So given what we know about CMOS, would you try it? I would try it. Why not? Mm. I'll eat anything. We need a tasting. I just don't know what you pair it with. Do you put it on bread? You should put it on toast. On toast? Or just eat it. Just eat it out of the jar. (laughs) Clearly smoothies. No, it has to be with something. I just can't eat something that's spreadable out of the jar. Why not? It's weird to me. You've never done that? No, it's weird to me. Mm. I don't know. So... After airing on Shark Tank, the company did five months worth of sales in three days. Wow. So they absolutely exploded on the CMOS scene. 2022 sales were estimated to be $4 million. So very much still profitable as a company and scaling. The one thing I will note, sometimes, you know, I shoot myself in the foot because I get so excited about these products and then I look them up on Uh Google. Yeah. And Jory, don't look at the reviews. I know. But the thing is, is the thing is, is I have to because that's how, as a consumer, I really start to rate products. And maybe that's bad, but I try to like do that word of mouth research. Okay. So here's the thing it has nothing to do with the taste. The problem with the company these days is that they're so popular that they cannot meet their current demand. So the backlog of orders is currently months and months and months long. And so you have a lot of friction in the experience because people are waiting to get their delicious sea moss. So it's like you got so much excitement, but they're not matching the the demand. So like Kevin Hart, Mark, what are you doing? What are you doing? Blew it up too far. You need to help them scale. (laughs) Get more moss. Yeah. But apparently, like, for the people that do get it, tastes really good. So, right. bonus. You set that up as though it was going to be, like, a one-star, like, turns yeah, out Jory. the sea moss is nasty. <laughs> yeah. Come on, Jory. I am here for the emotional roller coaster, right? Like, you never know. Well, Ariel and I just, you saw our faces <laughs> dropped. It was awful. <laughs> no! Sea moss! You know, what's an episode without some drama? So, <laughs> love it. Okay. Create Like the Greats, hosted by Ross Simmons, is brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. Each episode hosts an in-depth analysis of some of the greatest creations and creators of all time, along with deep dive conversations on the creative process that went into building companies and brands. If you like learning about history or learning about the creative process, you'll like this podcast. Listen to Create Like the Greats wherever you get your podcasts. All right, so third in the tank, we have the player's trunk. And this comes to us from founders Austin and Jason. And they come asking the Sharks for $650,000 for a 5% stake in their company. This is a $13 million valuation. That's punchy. That's a lot. So the problem that the player's trunk is trying to solve is that it's very difficult for D1 athletes to monetize their personal brands. Essentially, until recently, a college could sell replicas of like athletes' jerseys and things and make a profit. And Mm -hmm. the the player themselves actually received no compensation for Mm -hmm. these sales. So now there's like definitely some things shifting. And this is really where the player's trunk is trying to help. So It's essentially a website where it allows players that are either currently in college or post-college 
to sell their name, image, and likeness. So it's allowing athletes to really monetize and grow their personal brand. I wish we'd had this when I was in college. I could have sold right? my physics notebooks. That would have been oh huge. <laughs> no, no, but so this is cool. just for sports paraphernalia. Yeah, you have to be in sports ball, John. Oh, I thought it was this. for college mathletes. <laughs> oh. oh. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Wait, okay. Were you a math major? I was a physics major. Oh, nice. <laughs> and ended up in marketing. You can do whatever you set your mind to, kids. You know... <laughs> <laughs> Turning it back to the player's trunk, thinking about our pitch, what are your thoughts about this product? 5% for 650K for what is essentially an e-commerce platform. <laughs> when you really think about it, like they're evaluating themselves like they're a technology company in some ways. And it was way too much of a stretch coming out of the gate. I just didn't understand like what was that 650K like really needed for mm-hmm. and how are they going to scale with it. Because there's one thing to offer the merchandise itself. It's another thing to connect athletes with the brands that actually do the deals so they can continue to make money. Yeah. I mean, they're pitching themselves as a marketplace, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Some of the biggest companies that have been around in the past, you know, 10, 15 years have been marketplaces. eBay, Airbnb, Uber, all these companies are marketplaces and investors love them because you can basically facilitate transactions and take a slice on them. Mm -hmm. And many of them are kind of like winner take all market, you know? So if you can get in and you can move fast enough as a marketplace, you can just become known as the default place that people go to be an auction site. Like eBay is still the default auction site because it was a winner takes all market and they just Mm -hmm. like dominated on it. And so I think they have positioned themselves as a marketplace. And really the question is just like, can they be the winning marketplace or not. That's what caused me a little pause though, because I actually kept going back to eBay in my head. Like, right, like if you have an an athlete that has a massive social following, Mm -hmm. there's nothing stopping them from like listing their own jerseys on eBay. Yeah. Or just like a different auction site. But here we see this instance where it's like their main differentiator is that unlike other college sports marketplaces, they're allowing like vintage items to be sold where they're only taking 20%. But the current athletes, it seems like get hit with like a 40% take from their cut. So I like, I really couldn't understand why athletes would choose this marketplace. Like what's the differentiator here? Like what sets them apart really besides the fact that it's current college students talking to existing college students and they seem to think that their youthful influence is like unendlessly going to create relationships for them. Mm -hmm. I mean, every marketplace, it's two-sided and two-sided marketplaces can be really hard to mobilize. And so that kind of is the main question to me And by the way, this marketplace really only takes off if you get the players on it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's very dependent. Like in theory, if you had all the consumers there, then the players would come and that eventually will be a flywheel. But to get started, you actually have to have enough players on that consumers will go to it to buy things. Mm -hmm. And their answer to that was just like, we're young and we've got friends. You're not going to be young forever. Yep, that's that (laughs) college naivety. But I do wish they'd had some point of view on like what it was about their product Mm -hmm. that would actually allow them to mobilize with the players. Like I would probably consider taking a much smaller cut from the players. I would do like a whole bunch of things just to like make it incredibly attractive and incentivize players to actually want to get on board because I think that's the winning formula for them. Yeah. 
The thing is too about these athletes is like, if we're talking just like college athletes, they have like a four-year life cycle, right? So even if there are 800 players currently, you have to keep building into those relationships. It's not just like you have 800 really awesome people and you can wipe your hands of it. Yeah. I mean, if I were them, I'd be super targeted. What I would probably do is I would use Google search trends to actually figure Mm -hmm. out which players people are actually looking for jerseys on. And I would create incredible incentives to get them on the platform, basically give them a huge cut upfront, maybe even give some of them equity just to be like part of the company, which seemed like maybe was a little bit of what they were doing with some of the Mm co-founders. I'd sign exclusivity deals to get them that preferred cut and all that stuff. And I would like just try and lock them in. And that's what I would do. It just seems like based on how they were talking about them building the relationships, they like visit the college campus and like hope that they can draw people in. I think them leaning into the name, image, and likeness angle was probably one of the worst things they can do. I think if they leaned in towards just being a true marketplace, so maybe they resell things from celebrities and athletes, Mm. but I think they were trying really hard to kind of tie into, hey, this is an opportunity in the market, but they're not offering, again, what that differentiator is or what that incentive is for athletes. So I actually think they'd have a lot more success if they weren't so niche in their approach. College students think about only college. Tell you what. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I hear you on that area. That's an interesting debate to have is like, do you want to be verticalized or horizontal? Do you want to go deep on a niche? You know, I might argue for the niche strategy. Mm -hmm. Like, I think if you're a college player and you're trying to figure out who to sign up with, Mm -hmm. like signing up with a generic platform that may or may not become known for selling college sports memorabilia, I would probably want to go with someone who was known just for that thing. So I don't know. I think them saying, this is what we do and we are the best at it. We're going to like spend every minute of our time getting as many buyers for your goods on this platform as possible and making the platform as sticky as possible. I'd probably want to sign up with them. I'm the opposite because they're not established yet. Hmm. You know, I'd be more prone if like Amazon offered a program for college, like students specifically within their ecosystem, that that would make sense. And I feel like a lot of marketplaces, the ones that have done well are the ones that are horizontal. I mean, if you just look at like Uber, they were super verticalized. Yeah. Uber basically was like, we're going to do rides. And now they're just starting to push into other verticals. They're starting to do deliveries. They're starting to do, you know, food. They're starting to do other things. And so I don't know. One thing that was interesting, though, is like they focused entirely on how they were going to acquire people to sell goods, but not how they were going to acquire or get like brand recognition for people to buy them. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. like they completely didn't talk about that acquisition strategy. And I guess like it relies entirely on like influencer marketing, where it's like, I, I suppose if a player has fans, they can find out that they're auctioning in this particular place. But it also like seems like a kind of gap in their strategy to not be able to definitively tell like how they were going to spread the word to the buyers, which Mm -hmm. then keeps that flywheel going of acquiring more sellers. Yeah, that's a good point. They were more focused on athlete awareness as opposed to like the actual end consumer that would bring in their revenue for them awareness. Yeah. But it's like a field of dreams. Like Hmm. if you build it, they will come in theory. I think there's like definitely a time to market thing here, which is like, okay, we need to have enough domain authority and a savvy enough ads team and a savvy enough social team such that anytime a big moment in college sports happens, we've made a deal with that player as quickly as possible. Their stuff is up on our site and we're out promoting it to everybody who's in that market. Like, I think that's probably the winning strategy for them, which is why I see the value in getting as many players as possible kind of locked in and becoming known for that. Yeah. So one other thing that kind of needs to be talked about is their valuation. We started Mm -hmm. being like, oh, is this valuation fair or not? 13 million, need I remind you. Yeah, that's... uh, (laughs) 
It's a lot of money. It's a lot. And it's something that the sharks absolutely hated. We talked about if you build it, they will come. Yeah, that's not the case for sharks. <laughs> yeah, this comes back into the where do valuations come from? Is it based off of what investors previously want? Is it the blue sky, like upside momentum that you see that you're trying to sell in your company for? So I think this is a great example of like, they were very bullish, but I would have evaluated them at like 2.5 million. Like, not 13. I feel like that settles a little bit better for me. The only justification they really had is they had raised, like, 1.25 million in venture capital. Mm -hmm. But other than that, when the sharks were like, okay, but, like, what is it about you that makes you worth 13 million? This is where, honestly, some of the, like, inexperience started to show because they were like, because we just are. (laughs) We are a $13 million company. Yeah. They were a little misleading in their pitch because, you know, they talked about what they had sold on the platform and they basically said, hey, we've had one Point three million million in sales. The thing about that, though, when you're evaluating a marketplace, like that would be generally known as the GMV, like the gross merchandise volume or the gross bookings. That's not actually what their revenue is, mm-hmm. right? So what they are tracking is how much money people have spent buying things in their marketplace, not this cut of that that they took as revenue. And so I think in reality, they've only made like $200,000 in revenue, which makes us valuation even more difficult. Like you could argue, hey, it's a marketplace. We've got momentum. We've got some revenue growth. And so we should get, you know, a five to 10 X revenue multiple or something like that. And I think back when they were fundraising with VC in 2021 and, you know, the government in the US had printed trillions of dollars and everyone had money to spend investing in things and rates were zero. Like, yeah, you probably could have gotten like a 15 or 20 X revenue multiple on some seed round or something. And now, it's just crash back to earth. They've got to take a down around here. Okay, so they caught some flack for their valuation, but Kevin and Mark were both very much interested in trying to help them Yet out. Again. And that's where I think the bullishness kind of actually worked against these founders because they were willing to offer $650,000 for 30%. And they were willing to invest and like make this marketplace work. But because that devalued, I think, the company more than our founders thought it was worth, we ultimately didn't actually end up with a deal. They turned them down. Like Mark, the sports guy, and Kevin Hart, just Kevin Hart. Terrible decision. On their part. And I mean, yeah, Mr. Wonderful definitely called them bozos for (laughs) not taking that deal. They were like, you're going to regret it. Try explaining this to your friends, which that wasn't the most mature response. But, you know, Mr. Wonderful gets spicy. You can never get down on an entrepreneur for saying there's only so much of this company I'm willing to give up at this point in time. That's true. Right? Because if you play the clock out, let's say they are successful Mm -hmm. and they have to do another big fundraise. Let's say they want to raise $20 million in a year and a half because they've been so successful. Like, gosh, well, now they got to give away like another 40% of the company. Mm-hmm. I would imagine maybe their VCs influence them a certain way and VCs would have a strong incentive not to take a down round. And so yeah. I hope that they considered the incentives of their advisors carefully. And I can't help but think that having Mark Cuban as a large owner of this company would have increased the odds of its success like mm-hmm. 10 to 20x. I just can't help but think that. I appreciate that they didn't want to give up that much equity, but I think they might have had a more guaranteed rate of success in being the marketplace for this with Mark and Kevin's backing. I don't know. I think they were very foolish to walk away and should have been willing to give up more and say, sorry, VC capitalists, like, this is what's best for us. A bit of a company update. 
as we mentioned, no Shark Tank deal, womp womp. But actually, the player's trunk has added some limited edition playing cards and an auction website to auction off signed gear. So no word on like what they're actually bringing in every year in terms of revenue, but it still exists as a company and they seem to be like trying to expand on the types of goods. Mm. But yeah, no word on how much they regret it or not. Maybe they don't. We could be the fools and they could be making so much money. Yeah. I mean, a lot of entrepreneurs protect their equity fiercely mm-hmm. and end up being very successful. I think they just have to really believe in what their advantages are and be sure they go after them as aggressively as possible. That makes sense. All right. So on today's episode of Another Bite, we had Heart Week. Maybe that makes our golden bite a golden heart. But we had three products. We had Black Sands Entertainment, the Transformation Factory, and the Player's Trunk. And if you could only choose one of these Mm -hmm. companies, who are you giving the golden heart, the golden bite to? Yeah, I'm going with Transformation Factory. I just would bet on that entrepreneur like 99 out of 100 times. In that story. Yeah. Hell yeah. Mm -hmm. As tempting as it is for me to take the chaotic route, I'm going to agree with John and also give my golden heart to the Transformation Factory, too, just because there's so much upside between the product itself and the entrepreneur. Well, our hearts are aligned on this one because I think that ultimately the Transformation Factory, in terms of like a product I could see myself actually using, but then also just like how good that brand can be and like where that company could go as such an amazing entrepreneur. Honestly, no contest. You got to give it to them. We should all try to place orders and see how long it takes and who receives their order first. I don't know if that will positively help their sales, Ariel. <laughs> because you've got like some people waiting like four to five months for like a single jar. Wait, so that long. Yeah, yeah. Mm. You got some one stars to sift through before you get to the fives. But, you know, what I do for this podcast. <laughs> Today's episode was written and produced by the incomparable Matthew Brown. Additional support comes from Melanie Romero. If you like the show, tell your friends, tell your enemies, tell everybody. Because I mean, I like hanging out with you. Do you like hanging out with me? What do you say, Barb? I'm out. Okay, rude. (laughs) You can follow and subscribe to the show wherever fine podcasts are found. That's everywhere, in case you're wondering. Every podcast player, we're there. That's it from me, for real this time. We'll see you next week in the tank for another bite.